Alright, welcome everybody. I'm Boris Evenstein. This is Doing Well, Feeling Fine. I'm sitting down today with Marie-Laure Lequin. Am I saying it right? Yes. <laughs> All right, super. So Marie-Laure has over 25 years worth of experience in the high-end fashion and luxury space. She's an expert in both digital merchandising and online commerce, combining storytelling and curation for a lux luxury customer audience. At Gucci, for example, she shaped the jewelry business from scratch, rebranded watches under the Gucci umbrella, and contributed to 10x growth in the digital business in less than five years. She's just been appointed Chief Digital and Merchandising Officer at MCM Worldwide, a global luxury brand. Marie-Laure, welcome to Doing Well, Feeling Fine. Well, thank you very much for having me, buddies. Um, I was uh, looking forward to this conversation with you um, because I, um, I very much always have uh, enjoyed our uh, conversations and exchanges. So for me, it's, a, it's, a, it's an opportunity to have a lovely moment with you. Super. Um, thank you. Very nice to hear. Yes, yes, yes. I think that uh, you and I have in common of being uh, multicultural. I was, uh, I'm half Italian, half French, so that makes uh, also me a little bit different from the people in the environment I work with. Um, I, um, I was brought up in Holland, so uh, that's why I'm also uh, Nordic uh, in my DNA. So basically, yes, I, I made my career in Italy. Um, first for, for personal reasons, but then I decided to stay there because I think that uh, the way Italians interpret luxury and um, fashion is unique, is unique vis-a-vis -vis the French. One of the things I was thinking about in preparing for this interview was that fashion, it's not just clothes. It's, it's an expression of our identity, who we are or who we want to become. By the way, this is, I think, very important. This Uh, kind of simultaneity of expressing who we already are, but then also allowing us to imagine or dream a bit what we want to become. And if we think about the point of the podcast, doing well and feeling fine, if we don't talk about fashion, we would leave a huge gap somehow. So style conveys our story, whether real or imaginary. And uh, it does so even when we claim to be anti-fashion. Uh, so there's some people, obviously, they say, I'm anti-fashion. I only wear basics. I don't care. I want three black T-shirts. Uh, I don't even want to think about it. There's a whole story about, you know, the Silicon Valley tech types who only have the same gray T-shirt in, in the closet. They wear it every day to reduce cognitive load. But I would argue that we cannot not communicate through our social appearances in clothes. Uh, fashion is always, it's always on. It's, it, it's, it's. It's a communications channel that's always open. And so, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you, you have experienced, I mean, more than two decades of high-end fashion. So where people really think about this, what are three things that most normal people should really know about conveying their personal style? It's quite, uh, it's quite, it was quite easy for me to answer that question when I prepared myself for this uh, moment with you. Uh, the first one is fashion actually per se means little today, in my opinion, because what is really important, and even the way you presented the, the, the topic, you put it on the table, is in the end, fashion is self-expression. And um, the very first thing that I, the mantra 
that I used to say to my mother, who was asking me, how should I dress to be in fashion, is actually be yourself. If you are yourself, you are already in the self-expression and therefore you are relevant in your own fashion, in your own world. Um, the second thing is be completely relaxed on how you look. There is nobody who's going to judge how you look. In fact, um, in, my, in my career, I've always been taking on talents, not the way they looked, the, the way they spoke, the way they felt comfortable in their clothes. And the third thing is also be relaxed vis-a-vis -vis one very stupid thing, but the way you dress can also not be a success every single day. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And it doesn't yeah. really it doesn't really matter. It there are days that are better than others if you want to make an effort or but it doesn't really matter. What is true is the fact of being yourself is important because it's um it's a way to express your personality. And your past personality changes along your life, and that is why you can evolve in the way you dress. Um I think we're very lucky to be in 2023 in a world where there is no diktat of fashion any longer. Imagine uh, uh, if you and I had lived in the 60s or in the 50s where in the end Pret-à-Porter did not exist. So you had to go to the, 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 la, la couturière huh, to make yourself uh, one or two dresses per year if you had some money. Otherwise, you would have taken some of the other clothes and you would have amended them on you. So um, self-expression was, was more difficult. It was really, as you were mentioning earlier, a real social identification. Today, it's not a social identification. It's a personality expression. It's a state of mind expression. Therefore, it's an emotional uh, uh, state of mind that you can actually express. That is why I'm saying be yourself, relax, because all those are, are essential to feel well. So it's more about how you carry yourself than whether you get all the codes and all the signifiers exactly see, right. See. For me, yes. For me, if you look at some people, I'm not going to say names because we are not allowed to hear, but if you look at some influencers, the way they dress, because they are required by brands to dress in a certain way, how ridiculous they look because they haven't been choosing the clothes or because they are forced to wear those clothes, you can feel it. Even from a picture or from a video, you can feel it doesn't fit them. It looks wrong. How do you differentiate one luxury brand from another? I mean, they all have tremendous heritage. They all have a lot of brand equity. They all have recognition and bold logos. Um, but how should one think about the major differences? If you were to communicate the unique proposition of an MCM versus a Gucci or versus a Fendi or a Givenchy, how would you even think about that? I think that it, um, it's, it's a number of factors. It's not an easy question um, because the unique proposition or uh, the competitive advantage becomes then a competitive advantage uh, uh, towards the customer uh, can change over time. Um, there are moments where, for example, uh, Gucci and Hermès were very close to each other in terms of proposition because they were leveraging the same sign. So the horse bit, for example, you know, the horse, morse. Yep. Um, and um, the bridal and so from herb, a, yeah. Exactly. So from, from a product perspective, they were really close. At the same time, they both come from horse riding. So they were very, very, very close. Then what is the element that would differentiate one brand to the other at that point would be um, the nationality. So one was French, the other one was Italian. 
So the expression of that, if you like, heritage would be slightly different. So the French one would be more rigorous, probably more, um, uh, dire, um, more strict uh, in the way they would communicate it, more stable and also more long-lasting, while the Italians would be more generous and more volatile um, in the way they would say. Maybe the Italians would be more relaxed and less judgmental than the French, for example. I think that that's just an example of two brands that are really close one to another. But generally speaking, I think that uh, the brands try to enhance a lifestyle, especially those mega brands that you mentioned, so Gucci, Vuitton, Hermès. Um, they, they tend to attract um, an art de vivre, a way of living, um, and to differentiate themselves through that. Now... Um, other than that, I think that what then really makes the uh, value proposition unique is um, the designer and the design that uh, that he then delivers. No, um, because uh, I mean a, a good example is uh, is Burberry. Burberry until uh, tried to reposition and to relaunch until past year. Since uh, the new designer came on, it started to being cool again. So it's all a matter of how it is conveyed and the guy behind or the girl behind it. And so let, let's talk about that because you could say or some could argue that Gucci's rise to glory really kicked off when Tom Ford came on board and gave a certain appeal and a certain magic to the brand that then launched its success and you know started a massive rise throughout the 90s into the noughties. And then we had a couple of additional creative directors. If I get it right, we had Frida Giannini and then Alessandro Michele, who we just talked about, and now just appointed Sabato de Sarno. Can you talk a little bit about how that story and brand direction changes? So what changed? What stayed stable? What part is fixed? What part is evolving? My understanding is this. Uh, Gucci is a brand that has a huge, huge, huge awareness that goes much beyond the designer that uh, runs the, the style team, the design team. So uh, it's phenomenal how the brand has changed its skin from Tom to Frida to Alessandro, and now the next chapter will be Sabato. Um, yet, it, you're right, it stayed Gucci, But in the end, you would be surprised how much the customer base has changed. So it stays a brand because it stays the name Gucci, but it will change. It will change. So what remains stable is actually the brand name, in my opinion. Um, I think it's really, it's really that. Then naturally, uh, some aspect of the brand are uh, necessary, uh, necessarily will be respected because they belong to the brand. So for example, the inclusivity, Uh, the aspect of the disruption. Uh, Alessandro did what he did because he made a disruption, a creative disruption. Uh, Tom did, did the same. He actually did create a disruption at some point. Um, it's a brand that has a very strong emotional engagement with his customers, uh, whether it was before uh, the era of digital with, with Tom because he did create an emotional uh, disruption already at that time. And of course, Alessandro then brought it to the next level because we were in the middle of the uh, digital, uh, digital era. And of course, we see throughout that massive period, we see the rise of uh, streetwear and leisurewear becoming ever more influential, even in high fashion and luxury and, and in the designer world. Do you think this 
easy passage between high and low, between expressive urban cultures and sort of high-end couture culture. Do you think that that connection is here to stay? Or are we going to wake up one day and say, you know what, sneakers, streetwear, baggy trousers feels like that's a bit over and we're going to open a new chapter? Well, I think it's over already. Yeah? I think when, when you look at the, the sales composition uh, of a fashion brand, of any fashion brand, uh, whether it's a Vuitton, Gucci, or, or I mean, even if Vuitton and Gucci, Vuitton is not a fashion brand, as Gucci could be considered a fashion brand but still they make sneakers that's why i was mentioning them i mean anyone is actually seeing um a slowdown of the consumption of tracksuit track pants, t-shirts sweatshirts and sneakers and baseball caps and belt bags and all of that that is really the world of streetwear that you were earlier mentioning no i'm mentioning earlier um it's due to an economical situation that is uh, hitting the American market. That was one of the driver for this kind of uh, consumption. But it's also probably a certain fatigue, no? There is also certain fatigue on those products. So there is a need to reinvent. Um, the next, next chapter of that, I believe some of it will be relaxed, uh, relaxed clothes. So um you will continue wearing uh, we we all continue wear t-shirts so that will remain like evergreen but i think that the tracksuit track track you know tracksuit jacket and pants are going to be less of a momentum and i think that we will continue to wear denim so denim is is a big uh has a big momentum since a few years and um and and then probably there is more femininity as well into fashion so femininity that is actually completely transgender which is something today that is a huge evolution of the industry much more than uh, than uh, five years ago that is something that alessandro actually uh, initiated as well and then we need to observe we need to observe because i think that there is much more consciousness as well in how people consume fashion especially young crowds the younger crowd is looking into vintage much more than it used than than they used to yeah uh either pure vintage or vintage that they reinterpret they they you know uh change uh, on in different ways just to come back to this idea of brand usp differentiation of the brand and maybe revitalizing a brand so you've joined mcm mcm has in fact made a couple of leadership appointments to have a stellar new lineup to bring that brand to success and i was curious to figure out what does it mean, like, what does the playbook look like to revitalize a brand? And if we take this one, I mean, this is, a, I have to say, this is a, it's a German favorite. Uh, MCM stands for Michael uh, Cromer, I think, uh, Munich. That's, uh, yes. th that's the original MCM. And the brand, you know, has a, has an interesting roller coaster of a past. As, correct me, by the way, if I get it wrong, but there's a, there's a, there was a moment in the 90s when there was some economic uncertainty about how sustainable the whole thing would be. And it was sold off to financial investors. And then sort of a decade later, around 2006, uh, Michael Michalski was brought on board as designer and creative director to give some new life into, into the style of MCM. And then more recently, maybe five years ago or so, we saw the rise of some very, very trendy influencers being portrayed or associated with MCM, uh, even Billie Eilish, if I'm not wrong. And so... Yes. Uh, so where are we now in the evolution of this brand and how are you thinking about the playbook for refreshing it? 
the the brand today belongs to um, to Sunjo Kim, who is a Korean lady, um, and uh, it's it's fantastic to be uh, working for her under her leadership because she has onboarded and named a, a feminine uh, uh, team of um, of a creative and business uh, person. So I think that. Uh, if you like, when we, I, I just started a few months ago, so I'm, I'm very green to the, to the brand still. Uh, it's a brand that um, the reason why I joined is because um, the product has a huge potential. In the end, it's a brand that is known for its material. Uh, it's a coated canvas uh, that looks like leather even more uh, than Vuitton cotton canvas because it's cognac. And so just by saying it, you understand it's a land of opportunity. Uh, you're right, Michael Cromer uh, initiated uh, his, uh, his brand by inventing that, that canvas. And uh, he used it in the best possible way to actually torture test it because he used it for luggage. Mm. So it's uh, beautiful because it looks like leather. It's resistant because you can use it in luggage and therefore you can use it almost on anything. So uh, we are revisiting the brand. We are refreshing it. We are not reinventing it because we believe that there's many good things about the brand. The first thing we do is we look at the history. We understand which, is, uh, which are the, the values of the brand, the DNA, and who is the customer. Uh, one other uh, thing that I learned in Gucci when you revisit, if you can, you need to learn who your customer is, uh, whether it's your existing customer or the customer you want to attract. And usually when you revisit, you have to maintain the existing customer that who, who, who you decide, maybe he will decide to transition to the new face of the brand or he would, he would not, but you actually transition with him for a little while. Um, so that's what we're doing. So the, the way those things happen are a bit of a magic because certainly the first thing you do is you work on the branding. So the, usually the very first thing that happens is the logo. The logo gets a little refreshed, which is what Katie Chung did, uh, the creative director. Yes. Uh, so the, the, we, should, we should tell our listeners we have these other appointments alongside you, right? Uh, Tina Lutz and Katie Chung, who are jointly yes. leading up creative direction for the brand yourself on digital merchandising um yes please, i run the uh, the uh, digital and the merchandising and sabine brunner is the president so um, so we both have very com complementary competences so i i've been working in digital while she has been running uh, uh, small companies having much as well uh, experience in retail uh, as such so, um, so basically the very first thing that usually happens in those revisitation is, uh, the logo is, uh, revisited because that's the first sign that basically comes up front. Um, then for sure, um, you work on the branding. Branding in general is, uh, the very first thing. So usually the communication, the way you communicate is the first thing. So Alessandro did it in a very disruptive way because the first thing he did was a show, was a fashion show. Uh, we are doing it in a way that you will discover uh, because it will be released in a few weeks, but it's through communication on our side. Um, we just uh, landed with the, the new collection that we presented to the market uh, in these weeks. 
and it was very well perceived because it was an evolution of what the brand stands for. Um, usually, the, the next is that the is that the bandana collection. No, no, no. The bandana collection is something that is already on the market. What I'm referring to is a new collection that will be landing in six months, in six months from now. So who saw it were the journalists, the buyers, uh, the wholesale customers, your colleagues from Zalando came. Uh, so, um, you know. Got it. Um, got it. So I cannot show anything because uh, it, it still is, uh, it's like being produced, but uh, uh, that was very well perceived. And that is the first step of a rebranding that you usually do. Uh, that will be communicated in a very, uh, very strong way, uh, leveraging on the history as well. And the purpose of communication is to create desire. It's tricky because the creative direction sometimes goes into a territory that is quite new and provocative and maybe not yet fully arrived in society. So people don't understand, wait a minute, what is the meaning of this? So for example, if we see these, let's say, small handbags as accessories for men, you know, which might be new and might be exactly in that kind of non-binary space, it might confuse many customers and they don't really know, how, how do I make sense of this product? What does it do for me? Does it express my fashionability? Does it make me come across as maybe a bit effeminate? So what is going on here? So they don't know that. And the creative direction is one or two steps ahead of where the mainstream is or where the customer is at. How do you manage to be both desirable and new in a way that not everybody understands? That, that strikes me as difficult. Allora, this is not, I think that uh, what you just described is a problematic that very few brands really have. Um, because you really have to be bullish and bold, no? To be able to actually be so provocative that you can, you know, for example, have a man wearing women's clothes kind of thing and wearing makeup and all of that. And you can do that if you are... You know, if you can allow yourself to run the risk of losing half of your customers, um, even today, even today, uh, even today, you have to be cautious in respecting, uh, as you're saying, you know, the mainstream of people around you. So that is a, that is more an attitude that I think brands like, um, for example, Gucci could potentially do that. But you would never see Riviton do that. You would never see Hermes do that. You would never see Chanel do that. And you will never see MCM ever do that either. Um, I think that it's the characteristic of fashion brand not being fashion brands. So it's non-fashion brands, actually. Uh, not to the point of Gucci or other uh, brands in the industry like Bottega Veneta or, you know, Balenciaga. Going to sometimes being even scandalously uh, against some, you know, beliefs. Uh, running the risk of really closing down. That's what happened to Balenciaga. It was really, really bad. But other than that, um, where the, the, the difficulty of, of brands like, like, like the example of MCM is uh, create a distinctive value proposition without being provocative, without being disruptive in the way that people say, oh my God, I like it, I don't like it. We're like creating this white and black um that said you need to be prepared not to be not to be liked by everyone that's normal that's absolutely part of the game sure let's talk a bit about the commercial side 
On one hand, these brands are fueled by exclusivity, and exclusivity means that it's not easily affordable, it's not easily available. So price becomes a factor, and the scarcity of the distribution becomes a factor. So limited styles and limited volumes. At the same time, it's a big business, and it's in everybody's commercial interest to grow. How do you balance out the tension between over-distribution and the desire for growth? Everything is a matter of balance. Um, the offer will be balanced on price points, and you will balance it through the use of different materials. You will use it on the shapes, on the size. Um, you will also balance the um, fashion-driven lines and products with the non-fashion-driven products called carryover, so the long-lasting lines that will always in the leather good company make a huge i cannot say numbers but a huge slice of your business and will ensure profitability will ensure as well the reason why people come to you and recognize you and are proud to buy you um and you will balance distribution you will uh, uh try to keep it exclusive but at the same time you will cover uh the opportunity so you will uh, you will leverage where you see that people uh, would unexpectedly, for example, find you. That's why many brands are using the pop-up as a channel uh, strategy. Um, it was a strategy that was initiated by um, by Friton, by LVMH in Friton in particular, that uh, was very successful and that many brands start to do now as well. So it's a, it's a pop-up is a, would be a temporary store in an unexpected location with a dedicated product, so a different offer. Uh, it can be a collaboration. Uh, they started doing it with Supreme. With uh, So it's LV with Supreme made a capsule that was available, some of it in some stores, uh, retail stores, some of it outside of the normal streets of the luxury, uh, let's say, offer industry um, to make sure that it would actually grab a different customer. That's a really interesting system that's been around now for maybe 15, 20 years or so. And yes. by creating smaller runs in capsules presented in temporary spaces, you retain the exclusivity and the limited edition factor of the, of the offer. But because you do it in cycles that keep coming back, it allows you to work with bigger volumes bigger volumes than any one individual customer might perceive being in circulation in the marketplace. Is that, allora, is that fair? In, allora, in fact, allora, um, diciamo che these, these capsules usually, um, I mean, on the, on the time uh, where they are sold, they can represent up to 20, 30% of the business of the period in which you sell. But on overall, depending if you do one, if you do one of these every month, uh, then it's a different story. But if you do two to three on a month, on a yearly basis, they actually usually don't exceed 5% of your business. But from a customer interaction perspective, from a CRM perspective, they are extremely interesting because they uh, allow you to do acquisition. They allow you to do retention and obviously you build loyalty. Um, and it's a huge, it's a huge and unique opportunity to interact and engage with your customer in a very relevant way. So that for exactly. sure is a huge I mean, opportunity. It's, 
it's like the constant pipeline of storytelling, right? Which yes. takes us to our next point. I wanted to ask you, based on your experience in digital merchandising, I mean, you've obviously created the digital experience of, of Gucci, the brand experience, but also the commerce experience on its own .com, as it were, on its own proprietary channel, but then also on other partner platforms that you worked with that offered Gucci in a multi-brand setting. In the in this era of digital merchandising, how does storytelling play a role in creating that kind of immersive, engaging online shopping experience? Can you give us an example of using product storytelling to to drive digital sales? I think that uh, the examples I have are the ones that I built that I use in Gucci because this is this was really. Uh, the experience I have where we're most uh, producing content. And uh, I, I, we used to have dedicated content for any kind of launch we would make, including the digital uh, exclusive uh, collections that we would get once a year, twice a year max. And um, even in the case of not exclusively distributed, uh, digital distrib digi exclusive digitally distributed products, uh, digital would actually be the one channel uh, to sell those lines if the content was very close to the product. Um, there is a, a huge link between content and conversion if the content is engaging, as we said earlier. So the storytelling is about how it drives your emotions and how genuine it is, I think. This is really quite simple, but in the end, if you do it well, and if the customer journey is conveying that to the customer, like from the store to the site and vice versa, usually you get a very an optimal result. How do you create that story when you're in a mono brand environment? Because when you're in a multi-brand environment, which is kind of where my experience came from, the multi-brand shopping space, you could pull in different products from different brands and you could create a kind of life world out of that. So you could say, let me tell you about exercise and let me create a sports performance movie for you, combining these different products that have use cases for different parts of that experience, the footwear and the tracksuit and the wellness proposition afterwards and so on. And we, and we tell that multi-brand story. How do, how do you do it when you're in a mono-brand setting? Well, actually, you, you're thinking of, of the value proposition from uh, um, a usage perspective when you, when you give the examples that, that you give, which is not the angle for a mono-brand. Mono-brand, the angles are slightly different because they would be rather for uh, festivity or they would be festivity or a moment of the year. So it could be going to, towards the summer, going towards the winter, going skiing. Uh, which would be the usage that you actually mentioned, but I was rather thinking Christmas or a simple capsule uh, that is exclusive to a channel, exclusive to a moment. Um, we would also make a collaboration with an artist, for example, and that would also be, you know, limited in time. So uh, there are many ways that you can create a momentum uh, into a brand uh, and the reason actually to buy that goes beyond the reason to use basically yeah i i think so although i'm still wondering how are you thinking about creating that online experience for the customer when 
when the experience is less about infinite availability, so it's not about having every article and every size and every color and then for every particular use case, but typically the offer is more narrow, right? So it's seasonal. And then within that, there are certain items that you pick out for the shop and others that you leave out. So how do you think about working with, in a sense, a smaller palette with fewer items? I understand now the sense of your question. It's funny because we have very different experiences. You come from Zalando, where the more you get, the better. I come from Gucci, where uh, the less you give, the better. Why? (laughs) It's very interesting. Yeah, it is. It is. Because in in Zalando, uh, the reason to buy in Zalando are you give a service. That's why I loved the idea of building a, a design section in Zalando is because uh, you could leverage uh, fashion from a different angle. When you work in a modern brand environment, you are directional. You are the one deciding what the customer should buy. You set the rule. Then the good, I mean, the lucky customer that has a strong personality is actually using that rule to self-express himself but he is still following the rules that, that actually you give him as a modern brand uh, digital merchant or yeah, merchant. I, I, think that's, I think that's right. That's, that's probably your mission and maybe also even the customer expectation, right? The expectation is tell me what yeah. is your perspective, what is your direction, and I will decide if I like it. Which takes me to my next question. I was wondering in the world of multi-brand retail with many brands and with many articles in fact you know with a very very broad selection the story is about curation and the story is about personalization so you try to understand the customer as a member of an audience group and then you try to build the assortment you know for that group so this could this could be people who love streetwear in france that could be your exemplary audience group. And yeah. so you make the offer relevant there. This means there are certain items in fast fashion that that customer would not see because the assumption is not relevant to them. How does or does personalization play a role in high-end luxury? Um, it's, a, it's a very, very interesting question. It's a very uh, When you say personalization, you mean digital personalization, not personalizing the product itself, right? Well, a bit of both. I mean, you could say, for example, you have geographic personalization and then you respond to what the geo wants, and, and but that's it, for example. Uh, but in that sense, it would be if you are in Spain and I'm in Italy, we are seeing different offer on the site. If I'm in the Middle East or if I'm in China yes. versus if I'm yes. in the US. Yes, yes. Allora, um, I think that if you like for a monobrand, uh, it wouldn't, it, it would make sense, obviously, if you have a very large assortment to actually play with. Um, most of the time, the assortment is not that large and people look for the same things. You would be surprised. But there is a majority of people looking for the bestseller that is simply a general rule of luxury, of luxury industry. And the bestseller is usually worldwide. So that sense, in that sense, personalization, geographical personalization doesn't really... Uh, make a difference. Yet, we can think of a personalization of gender. We can think of a personalization of who I am just because of who I am. And um, in the middle of it, I would draw, I would still deliver some of the bestsellers to make sure that you buy something in the end. That can be, yes, that can happen. We also know that, for example, on a landing page, on a PLP, we know that we should not reasonably put more than 200 SKU. Because people would get lost. 
And as you know better than I do, that people lost on a page, leave. So you need yeah. to be focused. But yes, why not? Try to personalize, personalize what you want to show them according to who they are, their purchasing history, as well as their browsing history. I don't know. I have never seen a good personalized offer from a monogram, from, from, from a monobrand. I still think that multi-brands have more to play with. Yeah. When you think about digital merchandising, what, what, are you, what key metrics or indicators do you pay the most attention to? What's the most important thing for you? Masai. It's the usual ones. <laughs> so it's sell-through, uh, sales by themselves. Uh, so absolute sales, sell-through. Uh, I personally look a lot at the average price of what I sell because it gives me a clear indicator of who the customer is. Uh, I look as well at the proportion of uh, some categories versus others. Uh, I'm so used to do that that I can tell you the brand's health according to what it is that it sells, looking at the 20 bestsellers or looking at the proportion of large leather goods versus small leather goods, you know. So basically, I think, I think that, that is that. What is really, really interesting, uh, but is that brands are not really skilled to do yet, that I, I, I have it under my scope in MCM and I'm so, so happy to have it. It's CRM data. Mm -hmm. I think that um, when you start having really um, interesting metrics that you can analyze and look into it, that's really when it, the, the whole game starts. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be, you would not believe me if I told you the real proportion of new customer in Gucci every year in the database. <laughs> But um, uh, so, so those are the metrics that I would love to actually combine with sales metrics because sales, sales metrics per se are the same as everyone. No? Uh, then obviously you can add some digital metrics such as the page views and all the interactions that you know that people can look at, the heat map and blah, blah, blah. But What is really interesting is to understand how many customers are actually returning, how many customers exactly. are actually, um, uh, you know, long, long time customers, because that is an indicator of the heat of the brand and of the yeah. quality of the brand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's also where, uh, I don't exactly know the details, but that's also where loyalty programs or early access or special offers or vault yes, or things like that obviously. come in, right? Obviously, yeah. those things are all, uh, all instruments to um, to uh, incentivate um, lead generation or uh, uh, just simply um, uh, registration and all of that, absolutely. And that absolutely. kind of um, deep and, and, customer and are, relationship. Exactly, because those are the services that you can provide a customer when you are a monobrand. You can't provide discount, but you can provide early access when you are a monobrand. And that is also what, what you were saying about scarcity. Even though scarcity uh, is, all, is usually not a, a strategy, usually scarcity comes because there is too much demand vis-a-vis -vis the capacity, the supply chain capacity. It's a case of Hermes, it's a case of Gucci that I've been through. Um, but actually on some, some occasion, you play on scarcity to uh, incentivate people to register. That is true. That is true. So, for example, you limit uh, the access in time or you number the items on purpose. That, that is real scarcity. That is really, and that, that's where it becomes a strategy. I mean, and exclusive collections and exclusive products, I would imagine, right? Where you might say yeah. these are 
kind of members only products or you yes. know, maybe pop-up invitation products, those kinds of things? Yes. Allora, in that sense, we, we, we tried in Gucci to do a loyalty program of, of that, of that sort. Um, it's, you know, it's a bit of a um, double-faced uh, aspect to, to do those things because in fact, you end up having double, triple, four times collections, uh, in your, in your, in your offer. And it, it, it doesn't really make sense because the designers cannot produce twice as much product and collections distinctively one from another to actually please uh, the, the, the loyal customer. You imagine that the loyal customer have already all the bags and all the colors. So if you want to make a loyalty program for them, they want to have more. On the subject of making co collections in the, in the creative direction, I wanted to ask you, how is a collection tested? Do you gather market feedback on a new collection or do you just go for it belief-driven? Uh, bodies, do you think that Monsieur Saint Laurent or Monsieur Dior had data-driven input from merchants? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm not sure. I mean, maybe they had a kind of customer advisory group where they said, what do you think about this? Uh, but probably, no, they were so confident. They no. just said, this is it. I'm no, they were not confident at all. And the other, the other aspect of creativity is the profound unconfidence that those people, uh, those magic people, those humongous geniuses um, actually carry in themselves. They are constantly insecure. I mean, you can talk to them, you'll see. Um, and it's their beauty. They're particularly vulnerable. Um, uh, they're always insecure about what they create. Therefore, the answer to this question is creativity is the one thing that AI will never, ever, ever be able to reproduce. It's human. It's human-driven. And uh, it's something that uh, is, by definition, unexpected. Is disruptive. If Alessandro, uh, for example, had been told, um, do slippers and people will walk in the streets with your slippers, potentially with fur inside, uh, you know, the slip-ons, do it because it's going to be a hit. I mean, nobody would have believed him, but he did it because he <laughs> wanted to do it. And he actually used to cut his shoes to go around in the city. So, um, the answer to this question is no. Creativity is absolutely not data-driven and usually uh, is unexpected. So let's talk for a moment about sustainability. You also mentioned it as we were reflecting on pre-owned or refurbished or upcycled clothes. How are luxury houses like yours or the ones that you've seen up close responding to customers' increasing demand for, on the one hand, transparency into the environmental footprint of products, sourcing conditions, life cycle, and so on, but then this whole theme of sustainability more generally? I think that um, brands have a responsibility um, to ensure that how they produce is respectful uh, of who makes the items as well as respectful of the uh, environment uh, protection. So there is no doubt that uh, it's at the center of, um, of the luxury brands as well. Then um, I, I'm part of the managers who actually started this, uh, started the career when it 
absolutely didn't matter at all, where it was not cool at all to be actually sustainable, uh, to now being it a necessity, um, because even if the majority of customers are maybe not yet exactly looking at it or looking for it, it will be fundamental in the next 20 years from now. To answer the question, it's it actually from a supply chain perspective, my experience, what I see is it requires quite a lot of development and quite a lot of work because it usually is more expensive, less flexible in terms of colors and in terms of material to produce in with sustainable materials. So it's, and for example, on the supply chain, it takes longer to ship a product from point A to point B to do it sustainably because it goes through the sea. Then uh, it, would, it wouldn't be uh, easy. It's not easy to work as well with lower stock level. You have to have a unique supply chain with an immediate replenishment. If you want to be really, truly sustainable, you need to have a common pool of stock uh, to actually be able to replenish uh, in real time. So it's very difficult, very, very difficult. Today, I think that we all are getting there. We all are trying. We all are studying, but it's not, it's not easy at all. I can tell you it's not easy at all to really, truly be sustainable. And are you actively considering things like resale or, you know, authenticated resale or, you know, re refurbishment, let's say? Of course, of course. MCM, for example, is, is uh, among... MCM is actually, you know, even if it's a small brand, much smaller than Gucci or Vuitton, um, you would be amazed. And next time we do um, an exhibition, I invite you over so you have a look at it. It's a brand that has initiated many of the activations that large brands are doing today. Collaborations, as well as utilizing remaining material to do cool stuff uh, for events, outlets, whatever. So it is, uh, it is a mantra. It is a mantra uh, that often comes through Mrs. Kim, the owner, um, to do the best we can with what we have, basically. Tell us, the most glamorous thing about being in the fashion industry at the top end, from your perspective, is? Handcrafting, expertise uh, of uh, those who actually make the items, whether it's clothes or bags, um, expertise as well of the, the people who prepare the materials. I think that is, for me, the most glamorous aspect of uh, the industry I work in. Wow. And what about the least glamorous? Profit. The commercial side? <gasps> yes. <laughs> getting, getting monetization into the picture. Sure. I mean, that's the, <laughs> that's the perennial tension, right? It's the, the artistic side yes. with the commercial side yes. and getting that balance right. It's summer. We're sitting here. We're working away at 30 plus degrees Celsius, at least in the Northern Hemisphere it is. What's your perfect summer outfit in 2023? Unbranded, 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 vintage, 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 vintage. <laughs> okay. Say more. I mean, you're obviously That's working true. in a heavily branded environment, but then... Well, I think that, uh, for example, I've, I, no, it's true. I mean, it's, it's really true. So, uh, if I have to make a choice between two items, I really don't, don't care about the brand. I look at the quality of the, the item, the quality of the design, obviously the fit would be important. That's why I love vintage. 
uh, like all the fashion girls, vintage is the answer to many, many of our needs and aspects because you look unique. I mean, it does look unique, but it also reflects um, craftsmanship of, of, of when profit wasn't so important as today, for example. Just to close out, your two to three biggest goals for 2023? One, it will be to keep being enthusiastic, always. Uh, enthusiastic meaning as well, fas- uh, passionate. Two uh, would be to, and it's something we didn't speak about, maybe next time you interview me or we have a conversation, uh, continue to convey uh, feminine values in the leadership that, um, that I operate when I run the teams. And three, uh, probably try to maintain uh, an optimal work balance, work-life balance, which is not easy, but I would try yeah. to, to, to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that's good guidance for all of us. But tell us, what, give us an example for the, the values that you described under your second item. What would that be like? What leadership qualities would you like to foreground? I would like to, uh, if you like, always maintain. I mean, I, I, I am like that, like that as a nature because, um, because I'm a woman, I suppose. Or I don't know. I mean, this is the way I've been running the teams. But always have the strength of the team next to me. And always convey the sense of belonging through a common objective. So basically make sure that people actually feel well, are happy in what it is that they do. Well, thank you so much for coming to talk to me and to our listeners today. Really, really appreciate it. Have a great start in the new role. I hope that goes well. And when you come through Berlin this summer, please make sure to meet up and we'll spend some time face-to-face. I will. I would love that. Thank you so much, Bodies, for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you like the show, please recommend the podcast to a friend. Give us a rating and a quick review wherever you listen to it. This helps others who might be interested to find the show. If there's a topic we should absolutely cover or a guest you'd recommend, please send us your ideas and feedback to dwff.pod at gmail.com. 